I couldn't quite figure out why Mr. Hartman wanted me to preach until he said that he saw the inexperienced guys built the ark. So he must have been looking around for the most experienced guy in the body and was like, oh, there's, there's a guy who hasn't a clue. <laughs> if God does breakthrough in this church through this guy, we'll know it was God. <laughs> but uh, I am really nervous <laughs> just because of the respect that I have for where I'm standing this building, this group of people, Mr. Hamilton. I mean, this has been my spiritual epicenter. Um, and uh, yeah, I don't, I don't take this lightly. It um, makes me pretty nervous. Um, I really, I told God when I was standing out there, I'll, I'll go up there and be the fool. You just say something through me. Um, um, so Mr. Uh, Hartman asked me to share kind of the Elmberg to Pleasureville story. Um, and I think it's harder to, to share a story like that than it is to pick a topic and preach on it because when you really start thinking about, like, why did I make that decision, you start thinking about, well, so-and-so had this conversation with me and then I opened my Bible and it was this and then I prayed this and God answered that prayer this way and there's, all of a sudden there's a thousand different reasons why you made one decision. And uh, it gets hard sometimes to filter through all that and narrow it down to um, a kind of concise reason why... why um, so I'm, I believe God gave me um, kind of a way to kind of frame it all up um, without, without being here for four or five hours. Um, we've got it down to an hour and a half. So, um, But uh, one of the, Jeff talked about it when he preached, and it was, um, you know, I think anybody that's, that stood here that takes it seriously is overwhelmed with the responsibility about, about what you're about to do. You're about to stand in front of a group of people and say, God's word says this. And that's, that's a huge responsibility. Um, for me, a secondary responsibility to that is I believe that everybody who stands in front of anybody, whether it's on a street corner or in a store, as Christians, if we really believe in this thing called truth, then it's also our responsibility to make people think. Because giving people answers won't necessarily lead them to the truth. Making people think is a big part of that. And... Uh, and so one of the ways that I want to do that is just to encourage you guys to think with me through this a little bit tonight. To, um, I, don't, I don't like to spend time talking about um, what we've done too much because we haven't done anything. Uh, <laughs> I'm 30 years old with four kids. You can tell I don't know what I'm doing. Um, <laughs> but uh, but I, I do think that God can speak through people and God can speak through life experiences and through that revealed truth to you that fits your life and that fits your understanding of who he is. Um, so as a mental exercise, if everybody could grab a piece of paper or a, a phone, if you're like me and you just carry your iPhone to church because it looks, makes you look cooler, just that has a notepad feature pulled out there. And uh, just a qu- I want you to write the answer to this question. Can you list the three characteristics that you think primarily describe Jesus' character? What's the first three things you think of when you think of who Jesus is? All right, I'll save that and we'll look at it. We'll look at it later. Um, if you can turn over to John 1. And then let's, uh, let's bow our heads and pray.
I mean, Heavenly Father, I, um, I thank you for this opportunity to come before your throne, God, and um, as one body, as one group of people to um, just direct our gaze to you for a few minutes here tonight and ask you, Jesus, what do you like? And what is, how does that affect us? And um, God, I, I pray that by your supernatural grace and by your supernatural empowering, God, that you would do what we can't do, and that is to reveal to us a little bit more tonight about who you are and what you're like, God, and that that revelation would affect a change in our relationship with you and our relationship with each other and our relationship to the world that are, uh, as we behold you now, that we be changed by what we see, Jesus. And I ask that you would, um, just each and every person here, God, in a personal way, in a way that you can, only you can do, just show yourself to us tonight, God. We are your people. Um, we're humbled by the love that you've shown to us, God. We're humbled by the opportunity to be able to say we know Jesus, that we know God, and we know what he's like. We're just humbled by just the huge amount of grace that has been given to us already, God. And um, as a people, we come together now and just say thank you. Thank you for saving us, for pulling us out when you didn't have to, God, for um, teaching us what it was to walk in the light when we loved darkness, God, and um, for your just, um, just your millions of graces every day that keep us and sustain us and protect us and heal us. And uh, we, just, we just turn ourselves and our minds over to you. We surrender and ask that you would teach us, God. And you would teach us what it is to be like Jesus. Amen. Um, John 1 says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through him, and apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. If you can jump down to verse 9, it says, There was a true light which coming into the world enlightens every man. He was in the world, and the world through him, and the world did not know him. He came to his own, and those who were his own did not receive him. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even those who believe in his name, who were born not of, the blood, not of blood, nor the will of flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw his glory, glories of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. John testified about him and cried out, saying, This is he of whom I said, He who comes after me has a higher rank than I, for he existed before me. For of his fullness we have all received in grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, and grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten, of the, the only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, he was explained them. And the reason I wanted to read that was I want, I want you to, when reading that, you can't help but get a sense that this is a person we're talking about. This is a distinct individual. I mean, he's describing someone, right? So when we say, this is Jesus, it's like saying, this is John Salinger. There's only one John Salinger. And he's a certain person. He's got certain characteristics. He's got a personality. He's, he's got things that shape and make who he is. And I think we need to treat Jesus the same way. Because we are going to spend our whole life trying to be like Jesus. And the most, you know, they always say, like, when you're driving a car, what you look at is what you drive towards. And that's true in the spiritual realm as well. What we, what we believe Jesus to look like is what we head towards. And so getting right who Jesus is, is the, the most important thing we can do in our spiritual lives is understand who Jesus is 
and to understand what he looks like and what did he, you know, Jesus faced everyday decisions. He made a choice. He chose one thing over another thing. There's some things about Jesus that will never be, but there are things about Jesus that we are supposed to emulate, that we are supposed to look like. You know, in 1 John, it says we have this hope in ourselves. We don't know what he looks like, but when we see him, we know we're going to look like he is. So I want to encourage you guys that my story is, is, is just me wanting to look like Jesus. And I know your story is the same thing. And as we go through it, what I've, what I've tried to purpose in my heart to do is I look for Jesus in people and I emulate Jesus. I don't worry about the flesh part of it because that's something Jesus has got to work out of people. But um, so that's my prayer for tonight is just that as we go through this and we look at God's word and we look at one example of Jesus that we would ask Jesus to move our perception of him to a little bit closer to center, to a little bit closer to truth, so that we can really spend our lives looking like Jesus does, not looking like, a, um, I think so many forms of Christianity are just an extension of a, of a person's personality. They happen to like a certain set of things, they like to like a certain set of principles, and so Jesus, their Jesus looks a lot like those set of principles. And that's what I think we all have to fight to overcome. Um, so Mr. Hartman asked me um, about the Elmberg to Louisville move, and in thinking about it, I've got to go back, because before the Elmberg to Louisville move, there was a Shelbyville to Elmberg move, and before the Shelbyville to Elmberg move, there's a Peoria to Shelbyville move, and, uh, and it, and it all, all cascades one decision to the next. And uh, for me, um, you know, there was decisions leading up to before I moved to Shelbyville, but the moving to Shelbyville was a real, obviously, um, a big reason why I'm here. Um, obviously, I'd be somewhere else if I chose to go somewhere else. <laughs> Just, but, uh, but no, there was a time in my life when I was debating, um, should I go to Chicago with my friends? I wanted to be an architect. I wanted to go up there and live the city lifestyle, and Chicago was always a really cool place to go. Um, somewhere around that time, I can't remember before or after, but Jesus got a hold of me at a youth camp, and for the first time I realized that my whole life I'd been attending church. I was a pastor's kid. I knew all the right answers. We had devotions every night. I could tell you where all the books of the Bible were. I didn't have any trouble finding scripture. I didn't have any problem arguing the tenets of the faith. But for the first time in a youth camp, praying for Brett, actually, um, Jesus came. And for the first time, I realized that what was keeping me from Jesus wasn't rules. And it wasn't the fact that I was trying so hard but failing. It was the fact that I was afraid of what Jesus would do if I turned my life over to him. And in that moment, I remember just telling Jesus, all I told him was, I'm not afraid anymore, and you can have my life. And in that moment, Jesus became more beautiful to me than, than everything else. And that's what salvation is. Because it says the light shines in the darkness and the darkness did not comprehend it. So that was the start of it. And then, so then the decision came uh, where to move. And, uh, and I, I just felt like I couldn't, I couldn't make a godless decision. I couldn't just go to Chicago for no other reason than it would be fun. So then I started looking at where, where, did, I, where did I believe I could grow? Where did I believe that... Um, you know, a lot of people look at going to college. I looked at the fact that those years in your life are pivotal to everything else. You know, everything flows from those years of, you know, 16 to 25. The decisions that you guys are making, Mr. Hamilton's preacher row up here, the decisions you guys are making today, you'll carry with you the rest of your life. Where you decide to move and live, like I said, had I moved to Chicago, it had been a whole nother, whole nother life, a whole nother scenario. Um, 
but I came here because Mr. Hamilton was here. And I mean, I, you can't, I'm sure all of us have been thinking over the last couple of weeks just what that, that one man meant to all of us. Um, I am incredibly grateful that I did move here and that I had the opportunity to sit and learn from that guy because he had a lot of Jesus in him. And I learned a lot about Jesus from him. Um, I'm so thankful for his example for 33 years of being one place and showing what it was to be on fire week in and week out to just love what he did. I mean, Wednesday nights he's standing here and say, come on, people, I'm having fun. I don't know about you guys, but I'm having fun. To just see a life, you know, my goal early on after meeting Jesus was, Jesus, I just want to be on fire for you when I'm 50 like I am now. I don't want to just have a youth camp experience. And then when I get 50, just look around at my kids' soccer matches and, you know, nothing wrong with soccer matches. We've been going to soccer matches, but, you know, TV shows or whatever it is. And just, that's all that my life is. I want to be about Jesus. I still want to love Jesus. Jesus, if you come into me and do a work, then keep doing it when I'm 50. And I looked at somebody like Mr. Hamilton and I said, I don't know what he's got, but I want that. And so I came down here to figure out what, what made him different. Because he was, there was a lot of people with his message that came from his vein of thought. There was a lot of churches that have come and gone over the years. And yet there was something different about that one man. And he was just a man. But he had a lot of Jesus in him, and he taught me a lot in those years that I was here. Um, if you can turn over to Hebrews 13, I think we're all pretty familiar with this passage. Um, Hebrews 13, 7 and 8, it says, Remember those who led you, who spoke the word of God to you, considering the result of their conduct. Imitate their faith. For Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. So what I take that to mean is if it worked for Mr. Hamilton... It'll work for me because the same Jesus that he decided one day that, that he could put all of his, all of his you know, chips in one bag, he could bet the farm on, is going to be the same Jesus that I come to and say, I want to be like that. I want that work. Um, but really, in thinking about it this week, I have a ton of respect for Mr. Hamilton. He was definitely one of my heroes, and the rest of my life will forever be shaped by the things that I learned from him. But in thinking about it, I don't want to sell it short, my experience here, because I look around the room at a room full of people that have shaped me. And I mean that with all my heart. You guys have taken me into your house. You guys have given me jobs. You guys have given me work. You guys have taught me what it looks like to love Jesus. You guys have taught me what it looks like to stick with it, to stay the course. You guys have took, showed me so much about what Jesus is like. And I'm really thankful for that. Because I look around and I see a room of people that I can imitate. Yeah, we've got flesh, we've got failures. But you know what? In everybody that Jesus resides in, there's something we can learn from. Because in everybody, there's a little bit of Jesus. Maybe there's a lot of Jesus. Maybe there's a lot of flesh. But we can look at people and we can learn from them. And I'm really grateful that you guys have taken me in and let me learn from your guys' life. I'm just really thankful for that. And Mrs. Hamilton, I was thinking today that I know we've been saying a lot about Mr. Hamilton, but I'm married. <laughs> and I know that Mr. Hamilton's 33 years here are a big part to you. And I just, um, I was just thinking that today, and I'm just really thankful for your example too. Um, but, uh, but anyway, so, so that, that brought me to Shelbyville. Um, what took me out to Elmberg was the message. I remember hearing a message from Mr. Hamilton the next day, working out on Logan Station, and telling God, if you'll, if you'll start making the decisions in my life, 
If you'll bring me what I need, then I will turn my life over you and I will just trust you. I want to get to the place when I look around at my life that everything in my life came from you. That I can look at my life and say that decision came from God because I prayed and I asked him to help me make this decision and he, he brought it to me. And, uh, and along the way, um, we needed a bigger house. So we'd been taught what to do. We asked Jesus for a bigger house. We wanted a house in the country. We wanted a house with a cellar. So we got a house in Elmberg with a cellar. <laughs> And that is, that is absolutely no reflection on our spirituality. That is totally a reflection on the grace and the mercy of our Heavenly Father who delights to reward his children, who delights to see his children say, God, I'm going to take you at your word, and he delights to perform it in their lives. And so many times I think when we hear a faith message, we think, well, you know, that guy claimed a car or a house, or he claimed health and it worked for him. He must be spiritual. And I liked what Paul said at the, at the memorial service when he said, Mr. Hamilton was a man who just had a lot of faith in a faithful God. And that's what I learned from Mr. Hamilton was I can have faith in a faithful God. And that, you know, my failings are limitless and numerous, but God's always faithful. And uh, so moving to Elmberg for us was trusting God. It was, it was believing God could provide where we lacked um, so you see, I, I have my outline here, so how long can it take me? We've already got through the first one, legacy. Those are the three words God gave me, uh, was legacy, potential, and life. Um, so then potential, if you guys look back at your question, the answer you wrote to my question about what is Jesus, now I want to ask you, how attainable is it, like, is it for us to be like Jesus? To what degree can we be like Jesus? I mean, to be honest, theologically, there are ways that we can't be like Jesus, right? He was fully God and fully man. He wrought our salvation. We can't do those things. But so to what degree then can we be like Jesus? And I don't think there's an easy answer for that. I think the only way that we can know is just to read through the Gospels and see what Jesus was like if we want to know to what degree we can be like Jesus. But that's a pivotal, pivotal question in all of our lives because we are living lives that reflect how much we think we can be like Jesus. If we don't think it's possible for us to be like Jesus and we run in this parallel universe where there's Jesus over here and he was awesome and there's us over here and we're just doing the best we can. And in doing that, we completely deny the gospel. Because if we're just over here doing the best we can and Jesus is over here being awesome, then we've missed the entire point of the gospel. The gospel is that Jesus comes into us and lives through us. So those characteristics of Jesus is characteristics we should be embodying. And you say, but I can't. I've had this sin. I've had this personality quirk. I've had this attitude towards people for my entire life. I can't give it up. I've had this addiction. I've had this sin. I've had this secret. I've done, the, I've done everything in church, and I can't whoop it. I'll turn over to Luke Luke 4, and I want to read to you the first message that Jesus ever preached. And this is Jesus talking. He says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor, and he has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery to the sight of the blind, and to set free those who are oppressed to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. That's Jesus' message to us. He comes to us and says, I have come to set you free. And you say, but I've tried. And Jesus says, well, let me take over then. 
And that's where Jesus brought us. We lived out in Elmberg, and then, as you guys know our story pretty well, when the twins were born, and I can't tell you guys how much the church stepped up and helped us out on that one. Um, it, we, had, we had some some long days and nights, but um, this church was a huge part of our success, of our ability to, um, to continue, continue on. Um, so over the, over the next years, um, year or so, um, I remember it pretty distinctly because we were headed up to uh, the body in Indianapolis to hang out there over Christmas on 2013. And uh, on the car ride up, I don't, sometimes you have those conversations, you just got real honest all of a sudden, and you admitted that, you know, you, you were holding fast your confession, but the hope was gone. There wasn't a lot of, there wasn't a lot of confidence that, there, that the end of the thing would be better than the beginning. You know, Jeff was just talking about how there's, there's your past, and then your present, which is today, and then there's hope in the future, right? And I think it was on that, that drive up there that we realized that our hope was gone. And by God's grace, I think he allowed us to have that conversation because it just prepped us for the, for the word that Mr. Krieg, Krieg taught that day, and it was on faith. And it was on faith always moves forward. Faith always has expectancy. And we were like, well, that's what we're missing because we talked the whole way up about what was missing. And so we came back, and, uh, and we got a little desperate. We changed our lifestyle. We, uh, we shut the doors up a little bit, just stayed before God and just asked him, why aren't we desperate? Why, why, don't, we, why don't we care? And I, I, anybody that's been a Christian long enough probably knows that feeling. You can go to church, you sing the songs, you stand in the right place, you sit up and stand up at the right times, and yet there's not that expectancy that God's going to do big things, that God's going to fix broken things. And that expectancy is what we call faith. And what we heard in that message was that faith always moves forward. Faith always looks for God to do what he said he would do. And so we prayed and asked God to restore our faith, restore our trust and not that he'd done anything to lose it, but we needed him to come in and do that supernatural work. So, so he did that uh, piece by piece and really worked in us just, just a really strong desire. Um, I can't remember ever in my life caring so much about hearing God's voice and experiencing his presence. And it was during this process that he really worked in me just how reliant we have got to get on hearing the voice of God. It's not enough to just understand how to divide Scripture rightly. It's not enough to have all your I's dotted and your T's crossed. There comes a time in your life when you need to hear God. You need to stand up and say, God, I don't know what to do, and you need to hear God tell you what to do. And that became a really, really important thing. But then what was really encouraging about it was all of a sudden I read in the Bible and I found out God always talks. God's up there just talking away. I mean... Paul couldn't go to sleep at night without getting woken up and told to switch directions. And, you know, the one thing that really stuck out to me was this story where he's headed, uh, I think he's headed back towards Rome and every church he stopped at, everybody kept being like, you're going to die, man. And he was like, that's, that's okay. So not only was God speaking to him, he was speaking to all the churches on the way. God is always speaking. God wants, wants to tell us. What is Mr. Hamilton's favorite verse? My eye is upon you, I'll instruct you on the way to go. God wants us to know his will. God wants us to go forward with purpose, with expectancy that this is where God sent me and this is going to work. That's the only way the gospel goes forward. 
The book of Acts would not have been written if God was a silent God. If they were left to figure out which way to go and how to go and who to lay hands on and how, if they were left to their own devices, if they were left to the Old Testament scriptures to try to figure all that out, it would have never happened. It was a constant reliance on, you know, one day Philip's praying and boom, he's in a chariot. We need God to work supernaturally on our behalf. Especially those of us who believe that God is a supernatural God. There comes a time when arguments aren't going to fix anything. It's the power of God. What did Paul say? I didn't come to you with appealing arguments. I came to you in the power of God. And so we really, really just sought his face. God is gracious. I've always said, God, whatever you do in my life, bring my wife along. (laughs) You don't want to go alone. (laughs) If you're not married, you don't know that, but you don't want to go alone. Uh, But uh, I really, I, I just knew that the will of God is perfect. And if the will of God is perfect, that means it works perfectly So that, therefore, as I heard one preacher say, if you're a married man with kids, the will of God for you takes into account the fact you're married with kids. And the and the fact is, if your wife or kids suffer, you're not in the will of God. And so we, my prayer has always been, God, if your will is perfect, then don't just reveal it to me and don't have me tell my wife what your will is. You show us together. And it did work just like that. It did work just like that, and I don't even remember how. It just did. <laughs> I didn't even have to argue too much. Uh, <laughs> but no, it was really good, and we really did experience God's voice and God's presence. And it wasn't thundering from the clouds. Lots of times it was just through what you read in the morning. Um, but the biggest thing was the change in our hearts. And through that, we learned that, that w- we talked about freedom a minute ago. God really wants to set us free. God wants us to walk in the same level of freedom that Jesus walked when he was on the earth. Let me ask you, what could stop Jesus? I mean, they're like, we're going to stone you now, and he just walks through them. That's what I call freedom. I mean, most people, when you say freedom, they think, oh, okay, so I can drink beer and watch a movie. Well, (laughs) if that's what you want to do, I guess. But to me, freedom is being able to operate and do exactly what God wants you to do at any time with no hindrance. That's freedom. That's what Jesus died to provide. And that's what we felt like he was telling us. You know, at some point we have to look at the life of Jesus and then look at our lives and we have to see the shortcoming and we have to realize that there's a, if there's a shortage, if there's a way that we're not like Jesus, we need to find out why. And it's usually going to be bondage in some form or another. Something that's going to stop us from being like Jesus. And that's the thing that Jesus wants to work out of our lives. And I think through that process, we learned that um, surrender is always the first step to freedom. Because we think we're so smart, we think we've got it figured out, we think we know the next best step. But what God wants us to do is lay down the next step and all the steps they're after and say, we're out of plotting and scheming and planning the next step. Here's our lives, you just do what you want. And the only way you can do that is if you have faith in a faithful God. And do you really believe that if you give God a blank check that is your life and say, okay, you write in the sum now, you write in the total, do you really believe he's going to do good things with it? And do you really believe that his wisdom is better than your wisdom, that his, where he's going to take you is better than where you would take you? Because that's where he asks us to come. So if we want to experience freedom, we have to surrender. And there is never surrender where there's not obedience. It's just, it's just a game you're playing. 
You can say, well, I laid my life down, but did you obey? Because you'll find out when we lay our life down, Jesus shows us something about himself. He shows us something about who he is. He shows us something about what he's like. And there's always a response. So surrender is the only surrender when there's obedience after it. But the other thing we learned is that in all that surrender and obedience, when you really get before God and you really stay before him and you really get to see how beautiful he is and how, how awesome he takes care of us and what a good job he does with us, it gives you confidence in your surrender. There's no fear. Perfect love casts out fear. Love is that surety that God is going to take care of you. God comes in and overwhelms our fears. You know, like John said about that river, taking the whole Amazon River to water that one flower. That's the love that God has for us. And if we have confidence in our surrender, then we'll have joy in our obedience. And I think that's... Um, probably the, the biggest thing that he, he taught us in that time of, of seeking for him was that we had to be surrendering and we had to be obedient. Um, and so we realized, so we've talked about the legacy. That's how we got to Elmberg. That's how we, what we did out in Elmberg. And it was in Elmberg that God really started to work on us on the potential. We have heard a really good message. We have got some really deep soil. Now what are we going to do with it? I mean, is this the message that will set the captives free or is it not? Is all authority given to us or is it not? And if it is, if it's really as good as it looks, all that potential that we talk about every week and that Mr. Hamilton's been hammering into our heads over and over, if we really are capable of that relationship with God, if we're really capable of that amount of power, if we're really capable to walk in that level of freedom, then first of all, shouldn't we walk in it? And second of all, shouldn't we share it? Because if, if we keep it to ourselves, I think there's some parables and there's some, there's some stories about that. We want to look at one of them later, but, but the potential is huge. And, and I would just encourage you guys to really think about that potential, to really read the verses that talk about you shall and you can and God will and then believe them. Because what does it say about those who come to God? Those who come to God must believe that he is and he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. You never seek God in vain. You never overask God. You never bend his ear. He always wants to help. He always wants to come in. So we saw our potential, and in that, surrender became easy. Obedience became what we really wanted to do. We really just wanted to do what God wanted us to do. Um, and, then, and then we immediately discover a very high level of incompetence from our side, um, but being convinced that God was able to bring us all the way, we were okay with that. And we just told God, okay, we feel like you want us to leave Pleasureville. It's fun out here. We've got some awesome neighbors, but we, we don't know where to go next. I've got four kids, got to work, but I believe that you have laid on our hearts to move, so all I know to do is just make some phone calls. And just ask some people, what does a guy in my situation do? How, how, do I, how do I make my life about taking the potential and realizing it? And you'll realize that most of the potential that the Bible talks about is not potential that we consume on ourselves, but it's potential that we spill out to others. That's where most of the potential in the Bible is spent. And so we really wanted to make our life about 
bringing that power, that legacy, that life of Jesus to other people. We just didn't know how, and so we just asked God and read books, and we asked people, and we made phone calls, and we applied for jobs we didn't get, but all along the way, God was just leading us this way, and I told him early on, I said, God, I'm just going to start knocking on doors, and you open them, and you shut them. You make connections, and you cut connections. I'm not going to push. I'm not going to shove. I'm not going to try real hard to get anywhere. I'm just going to trust you, because is God able or is God not able to bring us to salvation? Is God able or not able to direct the steps of our lives? It says, the way of a man is within his heart, but who directs his steps? So let's take that faith and put some shoe rubber on it. Let's just step out and say, you know what, God, I don't know what I'm doing. I've been making this all about me my whole life, and I'm just speaking about me. I'm not pointing fingers at anybody. This is where I was, realizing that I'd been a consumer a lot more than I'd been a spender and just say, oh, God, I don't know what to do because I've, I've probably wasted some time. You've probably been trying to tell me some things I didn't pick up on. But I believe that you are and that you're a rewarder of those who diligently seek you. So I'm just going to step out and see what happens because I know that the end of the thing is in his hands because he says whom he called, he justified. And he foreknew and he ordained and then he glorified. And I probably got that order wrong. But he finishes the work. That got to, that's got to give us confidence. Read First John. He talks about confidence all the time. We should be confident. Unless we believe that God's stringing us along to see how far out on the tightrope we'll get and then it will break. Or unless we think God will lead us on a bum steer. The fact is, guys, we're not going to make it to heaven on our own. Our decisions and our wisdom and our strength and all of our fortitude and our best intentions and our most spiritual hour is not enough to warrant us FaceTime with God. It's something he comes and freely gives. And that's his grace. That's his love. It's because he wants to. Because he wants to give us a life that's not wasted. When we talk about redeemed, that's what we mean. Take a life that's useless. Take a life that's degraded and depraved and utterly without purpose. And flip it all up on its head. Make it brand new and give it purpose. Give it value. Redeem it. Give him a life that's not wasted. And only those who follow Jesus have that. He said, what does it matter if you gain the whole world but lose your soul? Only those who walk with Jesus don't waste their life. Everything else is a waste. So the next step was um, God eventually brought us into contact with a guy named Jared Miller who lives up in Portland. Him and his wife um, moved into Portland when the, on their wedding night because God's in control. His story is a lot like mine. He just thought God was calling him to do something, so he went and studied in Kenya. That guy gave him a job, turned it down. Guy gave him a job in Baltimore. There was no job for him there. Looked around. He had a couple weeks to find a place to live, and there was a free church building he could live in the upstairs of. And so they took it because that was all there was. Now eight years later, they're still there, and that's because God's in control. Because all of our plans, because God, God's plans are better, and because it's in the way, it's in the heart of a man to decide where to go, but God directs his steps. And so we met him, we talked to him, we prayed about it. Um, I talked with Mr. Hamilton and uh, was really just excited by his approval. He, he was all for it and excited about it. And uh, I don't think he understood it any more than I did, but I couldn't tell him much because I didn't know what I was doing either. Um, but uh, so, we, so we, uh, we started just planning to go that way. And, uh, and once again, really... Like, 
I don't want to overemphasize this, but don't kid yourself, guys. Like, this is Jake. <laughs> I, I haven't a clue what I'm doing. I'm just trying to follow Jesus today as best as I can. Like, Portland isn't a spiritual status. It's, it's not a merit badge. <laughs> you know, nothing that we ever do is a merit badge. You know? I'm just, one day at a time, I want to be more like Jesus tomorrow when I get out of bed than I was this morning. And I want to see a church full of people doing that. Because when we do that, we won't have to dream about breakthrough. We'll just see it. We won't talk about it. We'll experience it. Because Jesus is so much better than all the other alternatives. And by now, we should know that. Um, so we, we, uh, we moved up there. And in that process um, is probably when, when God really just started to, to challenge us about the life part of it. And, uh, and really for the first, first time, probably really tried to start working through what, what is kingdom. Um, I mean, Jesus talked about it all the time. I mean, it was everything. Everywhere he went, he said he, he came teaching the, the kingdom. When he came and did things, he said, the kingdom's here. And so really trying to wrap our minds around that. What does that mean? Why was it such a big deal to the early apostles and to Jesus? What is kingdom? What does that look like? In fact, it was such a big deal that Jesus said it's supposed to be our first priority, didn't he? He said, seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And yet, like, it would probably take us more than tonight to figure out all the different passages on what does is, what is kingdom, what does kingdom mean? Um, but that's really what, what God was challenging us with, is, is seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And so we ask ourselves, so what's the kingdom? What's the kingdom look like? What's it do? How do you participate in it? What's it like? Um, and just for the, for the shortness of it, um, in and to, and to order not to do it justice at all, um, I think the best thing I've, I could say in a short amount of time, my understanding of it, um, John used to always say, that, did you say it was a central theme of the Old Testament or the whole Bible when you would say it was God's people and God's land under God's rule? The whole Bible. Kingdom. <laughs> um, so if I misquoted you on that one, I'm sorry about that. But, um, but at John's Bible study, he would always say that, and that really stuck with me. It's God's people and God's land under God's rule. And we saw it in the Old Testament with the Israelites, right? It was all about God's people, taking them to God's land, putting them under God's rule. And what was the point of it? So that all the other nations would know that there was something different about Israel. Well, Israel did a really bad job at that, didn't they? They were horrible representations. In fact, they almost never represented what God was like and almost never obeyed his rule for more than a king or two. So then what is the promise of the Old Testament? That he would do a new thing, that he would change something. And us, we're the change. We're the kingdom. Now we are God's people and where we live is God's land. And our lives are to be expositions of God's rule. And I put a cross up in my front yard, not because I think it'll scare away any demons or give me any special power. Um, it might scare the neighbors away. They probably think I have a dog buried out there. But, uh, <laughs> but to me, that became really important to me. Because think about that. What does it look like where God's rule is? Well, if you want to answer that, 
what it looked like when Jesus came to town. He said they said they would bring out the whole city, and how many of them would Jesus heal? All of them. Were they sinners? Were they saved? Did they all believe him? Not very many of them. But where God's rule is, where there is light, there cannot be light in darkness. So where my house is, is God's land. And where I live, I'm God's people. And God's people are under God's rule, so there can be no darkness. And I want my neighbors to know what the difference is. And I hope they think the same thing when they look at our church and say, that's God's people. That warehouse is God's land. I better quit breaking in the dumb window. <laughs> but in their lives, exhibit the fact that they are under God's rule. Because what did they tell John's disciples when they came running up to him? What did Jesus say? Did he give him an argument about all the prophetic texts that his life proved? No. He brought God's kingdom to bear on the earth and said, now go tell John what you see and hear. The kingdom is here. And later on, Jesus says, they'll tell you, look, there's the kingdom of God, or over there's the kingdom of God, but don't go, because the kingdom of God is in you. So that's the preachers on the front row when you go to school tomorrow. You're God's people in God's land, under God's rule. All authority has been given to you, so live like it. And that goes for all of us, because we are God's people Where we live is God's land, and under his rule, nothing can harm us. Psalms 91. And so that's really become what me and Hannah have tried to make our lives about, is changing to look like Jesus until his rule becomes what we're known for. (laughs) And... Um, I don't have time to read it tonight, but what really, we, we, there's a lot of kind of power passages. Go into all the world, make disciples. All authority has been given unto you. Lay hands on the sick and they recover. But the one that always is precious to me is John 17. And I, we could read the whole chapter tonight, but we don't have time. But that is the degree to which we're supposed to look like Jesus. Because he prayed and said, Father, this is the glory that I've had with you. Now I want that glory to come out of all those who believe. And that's why I tell you that the worst thing we can do is to live in captivity. We think homosexuality is a gross sin because we don't understand it. I think that living in bondage when Jesus Christ shed his precious blood to set us free is, an, is abhorrent to God. He died to set us free from the things we choose to live in bondage to. And so we pray for that song, Oh, for Grace, to trust you more. Because the older you get, you find out pretty quick that all your intentions and your covenants and your vows and your 30 days and your 21 days and your early morning devotions, they all come and go. But Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And that power, that part of the Red Sea, that power that brought Joseph out of the jail cell and made him king of a people, that power that escalated Moses so that Moses could draw up God's people so Joshua could lead God's people in the promised land, that power that brought us Jesus Christ who stood in our place, took all of our sins on himself so that we could live free, that power is still available to us. And that power is bigger than our personality. It's bigger than our holdups. It's bigger than our addictions. It's bigger than our fears. 
So we just pray, oh, for grace to trust you more. Because you guys, we can't work our way out of the hole. We can't purpose in our hearts, God, I'm gonna, gonna do this or I'm gonna do that. When you say, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, it's about the abiding. I think that's a message Mr. Hamilton said everybody needed to have, right? The abiding Christ. And that message has become really, really precious to me. So, uh, so what, what are we doing in Portland? I don't know. <laughs> I really don't. I, <laughs> uh, we are just really just there because we believe like God called us there. And uh, I think a lot of people say like, you know, they, just, they see so-and-so go do something and they're like, man, you know, that's something else. My, I just don't have a heart for that. Or I just, you know, I'm just not called to that. Thank goodness. And I, and I think like... <laughs> I don't know, uh, I, to be honest, I never really had a heart to go to the disenfranchised or a heart to, to my, I mean, to be honest, my heart was more like country living and we wanted to do a CSA and do that kind of thing. But Jesus is better. And it's not about like who or what we have a heart for. It's about going to Jesus and saying, here's the blank check of my life, write in there whatever you want and I'll take it to the bank and cash it. If you guys can turn over to Matthew 25, I was really glad I heard Sunday, I think this got brought up, and I was already percolating. I had 12 hours of car time, so um, quite a bit of percolating. But, so the question is, what is God's kingdom? The next question is, once we decide what God's kingdom is, how do we participate in it? What does it look like to participate in God's kingdom? I pray for God to show me that, to show me what I'm supposed to be doing in God's kingdom, to show me the field that I'm supposed to plow so that I can get to work on it, so that God can get the glory that he's due from my life. And I pray that this church does the same thing. But I think Hannah said that this was one of the the words from Sunday, was the parable of the talents. But we don't have time. You could read from 14 to 46. It's all kind of one thought. Um, and I'd love to go through the whole thing, but um, we all know the story pretty well, right? It's about the, the parable of the talents. The master's getting ready to go on a long journey. The idea is Jesus is telling them the kingdom of God is like. So we were asking earlier, what's the kingdom of God like? So here's the kingdom of Jesus saying the kingdom of God is like this. And so the man's about to go on a journey. So he takes from his possessions and he gives to three people. He gives one five talents, one two talents, and one one talent. I think we're all pretty familiar with it. He comes back to see what they've done with it. The guy with five got five more. The guy with two got two more. The guy with one, he just blinked. He was, he was still at one. But what, when I was thinking, I think my whole life I've probably looked at this and said five talents. Well, that must be my talents. <laughs> That's poor translating on the, my part. Because um, talents is just a money denomination, I believe. Um, and I don't think he's talking about our talents here. And the reason I don't think he's talking about our talents here is because he's giving them from himself. He's giving them something they didn't have before. If it's our skills or our abilities, then it's something that we already possess before the master goes on his journey. But if you look in verse 15, or uh, no, verse 14, it says, a man about to go on a journey who called his own slaves and he entrusted whose possessions? His possessions. So the parable of the talents is not about people spending what's theirs wisely. 
The, people, the parable of the talents is not about using your resources. It's not about using your abilities, your skill sets, your unique experience. It's about using his skill set because it's his talents. And if, you know, I've never stopped to think about it. And in honesty, I, I hadn't really put too much thought in it. But when you, when you, if you make it about your skills, which I think is kind of what I've always thought of this parable, is, okay, well, I just need to use my skills wisely so that when he comes back, he sees that I was the best guitar player that I could be and I was the best construction worker. If we really think that's what this parable about it, we just destroyed the whole gospel. Because what is the gospel about? You know, I heard one guy say that every religion in the world is about man trying to get to God except for Christianity. Christianity is God comes down to man. And so in this story, this is God coming to man, giving man what man doesn't have, can't have, can't earn. He picked, two, he picked servants who couldn't afford those talents. And he entrusted his possessions to them. So then the question becomes, okay, if that's not skills, what are the talents? Um, I think one of the verses that came to my mind, because in verse... Uh, 15, it says, to one he gave five talents, to another two, and to another one, each according to his own ability. If you remember in Romans, he t- Paul talks about the measure of faith that he's given to each one. So I think faith could be a legitimate thing. Um, I tend to think because it, it's giving of himself, I would, I would lean more towards this is God's presence. This is God giving of himself, his power to make these servants able to do something. But I think either one could be biblical and hold up. So let's just say for the sake of argument that those talents are some kind of measure of power, some kind of measure of God's presence in a life to go and accomplish something, if we're going to put labels on it. So what is it accomplishing? They take their five talents and they do what with it? We're not told exactly what they do with it, We're just told what happens when the guy gets back, right? That that five has gone to 10 and that the two has gone to four. So how do you take power and multiply it? Can you take God's power and multiply it? Only if you share it. Because God's power is infinite, right? You know, when Jesus was walking down the road and the lady touched the hem of his garment... And he said, who touched me? And they said, well, that's crazy. Everybody around here is touching you. And he said, somebody touched me in faith. Somebody touched me and received power. Now, was Jesus less? Was he hurt? Was he weak because of it? No, he was just aware that power had gone out from him. God's power is infinite. So let's just say, for sake of plausibility, that the talents are power and that multiplication comes through disciples, through followers of God, through duplicating what God has given you in the lives of other people. So then we come to the guy who hid his talent in the ground. And if you jump up to verse 24, you come to why why didn't you go and use that talent I gave you? And here's his excuse. He says, And the one who received one talent came up and said, Master, I knew that you were a hard man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you did not scatter seed. And so I was afraid, and I went away, and I hid your talent in the ground. But look, I have what's yours. So if we're doing this passage justice so far, what did he do? He made it about himself, didn't he? He said, you've given me this talent. You've given me X. Let's just say it's salvation. 
but I knew that when you came back, you would take it all back. It would all be about you anyway. And so I wasn't going to sow where you hadn't sown. I wasn't going to reap where you haven't reaped because I knew you would take it all anyway. He was afraid what God would do with the harvest. He was afraid what God would do with the seed. And so he just didn't do anything. And so if we've done this passage justice, what are we doing with our talents? You know, Hebrews talks a lot about how magnificent the blood of Christ is and how valuable Jesus is. And talks about the weight that rests on us because Jesus shed his blood, because we aren't forgiven with the sin, with the blood of bulls and goats, because it wasn't a cow that took our place, but it was the precious lamb of God. It was the only begotten son of the father. That's the talents. See, we don't get to experience God's presence if Jesus doesn't go to the cross. He can't entrust us with those talents if Jesus doesn't go and make a way. And so now God comes to us and he says, what have you done with my talents? And the interesting thing is that it doesn't really say like, how did the guy go from five to 10? What's the secret potion number there? Who did he trade with? How did he get it? It just says he did it. And I was actually sitting there thinking, well, with other parables, when you want to understand a parable, you just kind of flip around through the gospels and you find where Jesus explained it, right? And the seed and the sower, the disciples came to him and were like, what did that even mean? It doesn't make any sense. And he's like, you know, well, here's what it means. So I was thinking that today and I just read the next verse and I realized, well, Jesus doesn't wait for him to come ask. He explains it. Verse 31, it says, but when the son of man, all right, so in verse 20 or verse 30, he has thrown the worthless servant into the place where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. And that is the end of the parable. If you remember, the parable was saying the kingdom of God is like. Here, Jesus interjects with but. So he just switched from a parable to reality, right? He's saying, but when the son of man comes, so the kingdom of God is like this. A guy who goes on his journey, when he comes back, he expects something. But when the son of man comes, so this is what really happens in his glory with the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. All the nations will be gathered before him and he will separate them one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will put the sheep on his right and the goats on the left. Then the king will say to those who are on the right, come, you are blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you invited me in. Naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him. Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and invite you in or naked and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and come to you? I find it really interesting that the righteous weren't any more aware of their actions than the unrighteous were. The righteous didn't know that they were ministering to Jesus any more than the unrighteous didn't know that they were turning Jesus away. One of them had Jesus inside of them and Jesus acts a certain way. Jesus does something. The other ones didn't have Jesus inside of them and so when Jesus came up hungry and thirsty, he got turned away. And the king will answer and say to them, truly I say to you, to the extent that you did it to one of these brothers of mine, even to the least of them, you did it to me.
I want to stand before Jesus one day and hear him say, well done, good and faithful servant. I want to, in the here and now, experience God's kingdom rule in my life. I have a son that's going to walk. Because God's kingdom does not tolerate darkness. There's a war going on. There are broken lives. There are hurting people. There are needs. And on this one passage of Scripture... It is, on this, in this passage, it is primarily our treatment of those people that show our heart. First John says, how do you say you love God if you don't love who you can see? And so we look at the person across the aisle, but most of the people listed in here probably aren't across the aisle from you. <laughs> I hope not. I'm break you out of jail. And it was, it's things like this that make you say, you know what, Jesus? Here's the checkbook. Because I want to hear you say, well done, good and faithful servant. And I look out my front window and I see way more pain than I can alleviate. I see far more suffering than I know the solution to. I see far more hurts and pains than I know how to fix. I have no idea what I'm going to do with my life. So you do something with my life. So that when I get done, you say, you know what? Remember that time you saw me and you put clothes on my back? Well, how did I get to put there to put clothes on his back? Because Jesus took me there. And that's, that can be anywhere. So we come back to, to Portland, and I think I'm just now beginning to realize, I think one of the trademark things that sometimes confused me, I think has confused a lot of people over the years about Mr. Hamilton, was how he would not do a program. You couldn't tie that man down and get a program out of him. <laughs> I remember going to him several times and being like, we're going to do this. And he'd be like, well, good luck with it. You know, if it keeps going, keep it going. If it fails, let it fail. I'm like, all right, thanks. <laughs> but I think I'm now beginning to see what he meant. And that's this, that we can get emotion stirred. I can stand up here and I can plead with you guys. I can put some pictures of some babies on some walls that'll make you cry. And you'll go and you'll do something. But what you do will be self-righteous. Because you'll see a need and you'll seek to fix it. Whose talents are we using? In one scenario, we use our talents. In another scenario, we use his talents. And only one of those is successful. And so I'm finally now starting to see in my life that you know what? You know what you need to do? You need to be still and know that he is God. The preacher's on the front row. You need to be still and know that he is God. We need to believe that God speaks because if God doesn't speak to us, then how do we know we're spending his talents? How do we know we're where God wants us? It's not about Portland anymore than it's about Shelbyville. It's about Jesus. It's about his presence in our lives. It's about living a lifestyle that permits us to be free enough to walk as Jesus walked. And what did Jesus say? I don't do my own will. I do the will of him that sent me. And we'll know we're getting close when we stop looking like us and start looking like him. If you read the high priestly prayer, that was the whole point of the prayer. Was God so overwhelmed them with my glory, the glory you've given me, so overwhelm my people that they are marked by it, that they are washed over with it, that they can't be hidden from the sight of anybody looking at their lives. And so 
up in Portland, we just try to try to live like Jesus, just like we would anywhere else. We're not in Portland because Portland needs us because we can't fix Portland. We're just in Portland because Jesus asked us to. And where are you at? Right where God puts you, I hope. I think we, we've missed the point. I think we've missed the point of Jesus' ex- explanation of what ministry looks like. Because I think no matter how hard we try, in a lot of ways, we like the Catholic system of hierarchies, of closeness to God based on dress and where you stand in the church building, of somebody else to do the work, and I'll do the listening. When really... Jesus was only in ministry for three years and somehow in that time equipped two or three bands of men to go out two by two and to wreak havoc on the countryside because we're all built to minister. Because I don't care if you're a housewife or a kid in school, can you feed the hungry? Can you clothe the naked? Does it take a pedigree? just takes Jesus' presence to change our hearts to make us care. And I think that when we start listening to Jesus, we'll start to care. You know, there's a lot of, there's a lot of valuable resources we've run across that all aim. There's one, if you got, I know you all are going to be on Facebook tonight, so just buzz on over to YouTube and change your life by Googling a guy named Eric Ludi has a little short seven-minute video called uh, what's it? Depraved Indifference. And he talks about how he was studying a Liberia, which is a poverty-stricken country, and seeing pictures of babies left on the side of the road, four-year-old babies left on the side of the road. And he said, in the middle of researching for that, God woke him up and said, what would you do if that was your son over there? Well, I'm a dad. I know what I would do. And there's a lot of really good dads in here, and I know what you would all do. You would take off. Because what's a four-year-old kid gotten chances of survival by themselves out there? None. And what hope of the blind of finding life unless somebody brings it to them? But it's not enough to, to hear me tell you that there's a need. And I think this is what Mr. Hamilton's been after all these years when he says, don't believe it because I say it, go home and see if it's so. Mr. Hamilton wasn't Mr. Hamilton because he heard somebody preach to him and he took somebody at their word. <clears throat> Mr. Hamilton is Mr. Hamilton because he got before God and he said, Jesus, you're better than everything else. Forget what everybody else is doing, I just want to know you. And the life he lived was just an extension of that. You know, if there was anybody I know, and as, as little as I know of him, if there was anybody I knew that just, just wanted to do it Jesus' way as best as he could figure out how, it was Mr. Hamilton. And we look at his life and think, man, what an impact one guy had on so many people. <clears throat> and I don't think he set out to do that. <clears throat> I think just one day at a time, he just said, you know what? Jesus, you're better. You're better than the easy way out. You're better than just following the crowd. You're better than me just sitting in a church seat. You're better than that. So I'm going to do more. I'm going to love you, Jesus. And I'm going to serve you, Jesus. 
And that's what I say when I say that we don't need more programs. I don't know exactly what Mr. Hamilton meant by it. Only he can explain that. But that's what I've come to believe is, is that I can tell you about Portland. <clears throat> we'll have a worship service up there Friday night. You're all welcome to come to it. We'll have a construction crew going on Saturday. You're all welcome to come to it. But don't look for a program to tell you what Jesus wants you to do. Don't wait for somebody else to tell you where the need's at. Because you're the only one with your talents. You know, we stand at a place where we're in a transition period. And I I can think of a really good example of how that went down with Moses and Joshua. Moses was equipped to do something. And Joshua was equipped to do something. Joshua couldn't do what Moses did and Moses couldn't do what Joshua did. So God raised up a Moses and God raised up a Joshua. I can't do what you guys can do. Can't. I'm not there. I don't know the people you know. Only you can do what you can do. And so Jesus comes inside of you so that he can reach out through you and affect the field that you're in. And that goes for everybody in here. We are all ministers. The difference between the old and new covenant is now we're all priests. There's a, a song I heard the other day that really stuck with me because it was based on the passage. One of my favorite passages of scripture is when Moses is standing there with God and he just got done pleading on behalf of Israel. And, you know, it said Moses, there wasn't any man like Moses because he talked face to face with God. And yet in all this, I remember the first time really reading this passage, I was just blown away that Moses' response after this long dialogue with God is, okay, now show me your glory. All right, the, you know, I mean, he just got done interceding on behalf of the entire nation. And yet he turns around and says, okay, now God, show me your glory. Man, how good is our God? That's got to be the prayer of our hearts, guys. We stand in a transition period and everybody's saying, get up under the yoke. What's your yoke? What's your field? God uses great men. And we've had great men and we have great men. And hopefully we're growing into great men and great women. So let's plow our fields. The kingdom of God is, is here for the progressing. You know, I, the best, I've always, spent, I spent years thinking, what's the greater works? You know, like, how do you beat raising the dead? What's better than that? You know, everywhere Jesus went was successful. How do you be bigger and better than Jesus? And I think this parable sums it up nicely when the man that was afraid says, I knew you harvested what you didn't reap, or you reaped what you didn't harvest. I knew you would take the, the increase from the field you never planted. And I like to think that those greater works are the fact that we are now Jesus' hands and feet. Where he was at one time confined to Palestine, he isn't any longer. And where he one time could only reach the people that were right in front of him, he, it's not that confined any longer. Now everywhere you are, he is. And everywhere you go, his kingdom goes. And everywhere his kingdom goes, his light goes. And where light is, darkness cannot also dwell. Turn on the light in a room, the darkness has to leave. And so we bring the light. And we, can, we do it the way that God tells us to do it. And we do it because God is capable and able to use us in a way where we successfully do it. Do we really believe that God is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him? Do we really think if we give him a blank checkbook, he'll ruin our lives or ask from us what we can't give? 
Are we afraid? Because perfect love casts out fear and his love is perfect. And his will for your life is perfect. He's thought of all the contingencies. He's thought of all the what ifs. Now he's just asking you, do you trust me? Do you trust me to, to walk away from it all or to walk into it all? You guys, it's not any more holy to give up all your possessions than it is to win the lottery if God's not in it. But it's also not any more holy to hoard up for yourself and watch other people starve because you said God gave it to you. We do what we do because God asked us to, not because we're more or less holy based off what we do. We're holy to the amount that we lend our lives to Jesus' service. It wasn't too long ago, I think it was Mr. Hamilton that brought up Exodus 33, and it really struck me that we think holiness is a lot of things, mostly puranical and Catholic. But in that passage, if you remember, he says, if you don't go with us, don't send us. Now, God hadn't told Moses that he couldn't go into the promised land. What God had told Moses was you're going alone. And Moses could have went into the promised land with all of the, all of the traditions, all of the sacrifices. He could have hung on to the tabernacle. He had the blueprint. He could have just went on his way. That's called religion. What Moses knew is that apart from God's presence, everything we do is religion. The only thing that stops it being our righteousness is if it's his righteousness, and it's only his righteousness to the point that we yield to him. And we say, Jesus, you live through me. And the reason that this is really, really important is because last night, last night we, uh, we did a ministry. We call it ministry because it makes us feel better. We, we just randomly ended up with 15 or 20 kids running out of the, in and out of the house. So, right, we're doing clothes, clothes of the naked and feed the hungry and we're spiritual, except it was complete mayhem. <laughs> and we didn't have control of the situation at all. It was just barely our house. <laughs> and it was my kids that were getting run over and shoved down and it was, it was their kids that were running, running the show. And if it's a program that sends us out to do the work of Jesus... We'll come back. And if it's a support group or it's some friends that tell us that we're good because we do something, we'll come back. Because when it starts to look like it's not working, we'll say so-and-so had a terrible idea. You know what? If I was in their shoes, I would know better than to do such and so. If I was running this program, I would. But when it's Jesus, you say, you know what, Jesus? I don't know what I'm doing. But I'm willing to bet that you've got it all figured out and that you're going to teach me something in this. You're going to teach my kids something in this. You're going to protect us all and keep us safe and that somehow in all of that, I'm feeding you and I'm clothing you and I don't know how. I can't even get your attention apparently, (laughs) but I can put some food in your belly. But guys, that's Christianity. That's it. We're just here to be conveyors of light. Otherwise, Jesus could just say, believe on me, up we go to heaven. If it was really all about us, that's what the Christian life would be. He would have the people born into the world that he wanted to take to heaven with us, and he would take them to heaven. But God has chosen to move in such a way where he moves through us, and what an honor that is. You know what's going to be exciting? Is when we're walking down the street and our shadow falls on somebody and they stand up. Can't happen? Did happen. Done already. 
I don't know if I'll do the shadow thing, but I'm going to do something. Because I told Hannah a few weeks ago, I said, you know what? My whole life I've been able to say, I believe God will heal me. But then when I go to pray for somebody, I have all these reasons why it might not work, why it could not work, why so-and-so might get in the way or my feelings might get in the way. I don't know. I've got to clear the room. I've got to do all this stuff and be super spiritual before I pray for somebody's healing. But you know what? Peter and Paul didn't worry about that. Why? Because they believed when they laid hands on him, they were going to raise up. They believed that when they came to the blind man, he was going to see. They believed when they came to the lame, he was going to stand up and walk. So you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to believe. So if I come across the guy with a brain tumor, I'm going to pray for him. I'll be the first one in line because you know what? I want to experience God's glory. I want to experience God's presence. You know what? If it doesn't work and I fall flat on my face, it's not God. And he'll teach me what I need to know. He told me to do it. So let's do it. What do we fear? So what if we look awful? So what if we look like fools? If Jesus said it's possible, if Jesus said that you could lay hands on a heroin addict and see him come right out of it, then let's do it. Let's not let them suffer their whole lives and waste away in nothing when we have the power and we could change lives, but we choose not to because we don't know if it'll work for us. We're wasting our lives. We have all that potential, guys, because Jesus lives in us. Go home and read John 17 and see what was he praying for us. That was Jesus Christ, the Son of God, praying into our lives, saying, God, this is what I want their lives to look like. And it was all glory. It was all this glory with the glory that you've given me and I've shared with you. Now I want them to come into that relationship and I want them to experience that glory. That's the God that we serve and what a God he is. And I asked Jay to save a couple songs for us. I don't know if he did that. But uh, if Jay can come up, and I want to give you guys a chance, because what kind of teacher doesn't let the pupils practice? But I want to show you guys how easy ministry is. And I want you guys to minister to each other tonight. So when Jay comes up here and starts singing, I want you guys to pick one person in the room that you don't normally pray for. Hopefully that's not a family member or friends. Hopefully you guys pray for each other a lot. You don't have to get up and go do anything. Just pick somebody in this room and minister to them. Pray on their behalf. Pray that God would give them strength. Pray that God would lift them up. Pray that God would change minds, change hearts. Pray that God is able and capable to change that brother or that sister, to change their circumstances, to change the hardship, to soften, to build up, to break down, whatever it needs to do. Pray. And when you pray, believe. Believe that those who come to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek. And I want you to speak that into somebody else's life tonight. I want you to really just pick somebody. Don't just do it as an exercise. You guys can do it. Pick somebody. Does God work through you guys? Then believe that when you pray, he's going to change something because you prayed. Angelic forces in heaven are going to move because you asked God to do something. And that's powerful, guys. That's powerful. So if we can just sing a couple songs and Jay can close us out, I just encourage you guys to do that. Be about ministry. Be about the Son's glory.